0: We want to thank you for tuning in to the Indian Run Christian Church Podcast with Pastor Terry Bailey. This podcast can be found on iTunes by searching for Terry Bailey Ministries. Right now, let's get to Pastor Terry's insightful message.
1: Good morning. Try that again. Good morning. Great to be a Christian today. Amen. Amen. Privilege to be in the house of the Lord, right? It is so. Not too long ago, just a couple of weeks, the uh, the praise team did a special, a song called "Rattle," which is a song about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and about the great promise of our resurrection. And there was a line in the song that says. Just ask the man who was thrown on the bones of Elisha if there's anything God cannot do. And of course, I hope one day in glory to be able to talk to that man. But his answer, based on his experience, would be, No, there's not anything God can't do. I was dead and he raised me to life. Well, that whole thing got me thinking about the ministry of elisha, and this miracle, of course, is a is a postmortem one after Elisha has died. still, a miracle is accomplished simply because someone fell on his grave. But as I reflected on that, it seemed to me that the whole ministry of elisha is a much neglected and probably poorly understood portion of scripture and there are reasons for that one is that in our heads we never manage to maintain a clean separation between Elisha and Elijah we kind of mince their stories together. And there are reasons for that. I understand it. Their names sound very similar. And Elisha was the first of the 7,000 men whom God said had not bowed the knee to Baal that he introduced to Elijah when Elijah was so discouraged about being in the work alone that he laid down beneath the juniper tree and wished to die. And Elisha becomes the protege of Elijah. Ja, and the two of them together, uh, begin to draw in more of these men that God spoke of, and they found a kind of school, a kind of ministry called the Sons of the Prophets, and Elijah is the number one guy in the Sons of the Prophets, and Elisha is kind of his right hand number two guy in the sons of the prophets. And when Elijah crossed the Jordan on his final journey to be taken up in the fiery chariot, he was accompanied only by Elisha. And Elijah says to Elisha, what can I do for you before I'm gone? And Elisha says to Elijah, give me a double portion of the spirit that is in you. And Elijah says, well, that will be up to God, but if when I leave, my mantle falls back down to you, you will know that your prayer is answered. And Elijah is taken. And Elisha is left. But the mantle falls back down. And Elisha, goes forward operating in the strength of that spirit which was in Elijah. So I understand the overlap, the connections, and why we don't always manage to get a clean separation between the two. Beyond that, we do not understand the story of Elisha because it is one of those where it is most necessary for us to take in the context of the stories. And for a number of reasons, we don't do that. Some of the reasons are linguistic. Do you know that there are things that we say every day in English that even if translated are just about non-intelligible to non-English Speakers, I give you an example of one I discovered for myself years ago on one of our trips to Honduras. I wanted to compliment a guy, and what I wanted to say was, "He's a sharp cookie." Now, how many of you here know what I mean when I say "sharp cookie"? Several of us do. We're talking about a man who is shrewd and able—a sharp cookie. Turns out that's not a thing in Spanish. And e- even if you try to translate the words, gelata, uh, afiata, or something, something, that's not a thing either. He wasn't sure if I was insulting him or what. What, what, what? Sharp cookie, what? What is sharp cookie? If Mike Felsen and Susie are, are watching this today, Mike will remember we had to explain it. The The correct word is perspicaz. Perspicaz! For the guy who is... A sharp cookie. In my research, I have discovered that there are other common English phrases that make zero sense to people who are not English speakers. Phrases like cold turkey. Everybody here knows what I mean when I say cold turkey. They have no idea out there what we mean when we say cold turkey. Uh, Another phrase that just doesn't communicate anything outside of our context is this. Something's about to go down by which we mean something big and important is going to happen, quite possibly something with a negative impact. But those words, even if translated, don't carry that meaning into another linguistic context. It works the other way too. I'll just use one. In my research, I came across several, but the one that stuck with me was the the Swedish language. And they will say, uh, even if we translate it to English, it will be, There's no cow on the ice. Perfectly clear, right? It means don't worry. You're safe. Now, if you've never been around a cow on the ice, that may not be a picture you can conjure up, but that's what means no cow on the ice means no worries. You are safe at this moment. But when I say no cow on the ice, that just doesn't do it for you, does it? Well, the Hebrew language is like that. And and I will, will bring up an example in a little bit. Another of the contextual things we miss, I always encourage you to study the place names in the Bible. Often knowing the geography and the history of a place will enlighten you about things that happened there. If I were to tell you of an important meeting between the governor of Texas and... Some high-ranking federal officials from Mexico and I were to say this meeting happened at the Alamo just outside of San Antonio. The significance of that place would be obvious to almost everybody here. But those who don't know our geography and national history well might skip right over that. It's just another strange place name they don't know anything about. The way that we do most of the place names in the Bible. And I will say something about that in a minute too the linguistic the geographic and the situational let me begin with that understand this situation Elijah is gone and they all knew he was going to be the The spirit of the Lord had laid this truth upon them and as he and Elisha walked off to to the place where Elijah would be taken up. Sons of the prophets kept stopping them and saying to Elisha, did you know that our master is about to be taken away from us? And a little further down the road, hey, hey, do you know that our master is about to be taken away from us? The Spirit of the Lord had made this plain, two are going, only one is coming back. Elijah is not returning from this trip. Elijah, Elijah, the one who called down fire from heaven. Elijah, the one who said, don't rain, and it didn't rain. The one who said later, okay, you can rain now, and it rained. Elijah, the one who outran on his two legs the king's horses and chariots. That man who has been your leader and who has done all these amazing things is not coming home from this trip. Elisha, the guy who stood by and watched him do all these amazing things, the guy who was kind of number two in his administrative aid, he's your leader now in this dangerous world. So no more Elijah for you, sons of the prophets. Who you have is Elisha. And if you go back and read, the sons of the prophets were so confident in the abilities of Elisha that their first request of him was, how about we go back across the Jordan and conduct a search? Because maybe God left Elijah on some mountaintop out there. Maybe he's just hiding out in some wilderness location and we can go and find him and bring him back so that we'll have a leader again. This is the level of their confidence in Elisha as their new leader and Elisha tells them no there is no point conducting this search but they harangue and beg until he gives in and they go and they spend three days combing the wilderness because they are that anxious to have Elijah back and not be left to follow the leadership of Elisha now I want you to keep that in mind. And let me talk a little bit about the subjects of this bear mauling that uh, the passage indicates. And, you know, le- le- let me say in starting that I didn't have to dig too deep into the literature, the commentaries about this portion of Kings, to realize that modern Christianity is pretty embarrassed by the ministry of Elisha. Sometimes we skip over it because we don't like it. I mean, some of of the miracles that he did, uh, you know, it's it's like, we, we understand. We understand raising the dead, the spiritual significance. We understand healing lepers, the spiritual significance. We understand the calling down from fire. excuse me, the calling down of fire from heaven on those who would oppose the forward motion of the covenant that God had established. We understand those, but a guy is careless and loses his axe head and it falls into the river and Elisha, you know, and the axe head floats which it's an iron axe head and they don't usually do, you know, they, it floats and it, I think by the description it actually kind of swims. It floats laterally and comes back to the guy and say, well, that's a little gratuitous, don't you think? Or why, some of them seem like chemistry experiments. Why should you have to put new a new pot, put some salt in it and pour that into the foul waters of Jericho and we just find ourselves a little put off by the nature of the miracles of Elisha. And if we really properly understand what's going on, we would be less so. But if any one of his miracles puts us off the most, it is this business of the boys being mauled by the bears. (laughs) You know, some some little kids make some rude, baldy comments. And God has them mauled by bears? Is this what it's about? This offends us. And we find it easier just not to deal with it. So let's talk about the subjects of the bear mauling. They, They are called... Most translations will go with young lads or boys or something like that. The actual words are na'ar katal. I don't really know that you'll remember that, but I'll tell you na'ar katal. And it can be translated as children. What it literally means is little subordinates, little Subordinates. So Andrew, this is a very useful term. Let me introduce you to my little subordinates, Elijah and Ben, right? Little subordinates. And it is often translated. Children, particularly teenagers, are the reference of that kind of thing. Often translated that way. But let me tell you, it is also the word that is used to describe Absalom the son of David, when he was old enough to murder his stepbrother to avenge the molestation of his full sister, and he was banished for that, and when he was brought back, he immediately launched a rebellion against David to throw him off the throne and put himself on the throne when he was old enough to do all that he was still called the Naar Katal because he was supposed to be the little subordinate of David but he was not behaving as such but he was not in kindergarten when these things happened he was a grown man fully capable of doing much harm and yet he was called the Naar Katal, the little subordinate when uh, Sennacherib of Assyria sent emissaries to spread propaganda to the subjects of King Hezekiah, saying, we Assyrians are coming, and we're going to do this and this and this, and even your own God has prophesied it, so there's no point you trying to resist it. Just give up. All is lost. Those propagandists are the naar the little subordinates. Of Sennacherib, sent out to spread. How many of you think that he chose kindergartners to go out and do this job? When Solomon was twenty years old and took the throne, he was called the Katal, the little subordinate. The idea was that he would be the little subordinate. Of God, but he was a full-grown man when Boaz called the foreman of his workers and explained to that man how Ruth was to be treated and how Ruth was not to be treated in his fields, that man is called Boaz's the ark, He's his little subordinate, but it obviously wasn't a child all through the Bible. The word is used this way to describe big, full-grown people with big full-grown motives, responsibilities, and shortcomings. Now here in Second Kings 2, they usually translate it, young lads, boys, because there is no context. We're not given the names. We're not given any offices. So without anything to give us this clue, we're just going to go with, this is nothing worse than some teenagers who are following the prophet down the street and insulting him. Perhaps it is nothing worse than that, but let me ask let me just start with this. Um oh I I I I don't know, Judy Bourne. Judy, if you were walking through a town and, and let me let me explain one more thing. It says that the bears mauled forty two of the number of these youths, meaning that there were more than forty two of them. So let's just round it off and say there were 50 of them. If you were walking through a town and it was nothing worse than 50 teenage boys who were following you down the street, insulting you, would you feel unsafe? All right, we understand. But that is not the fullness of this picture either. Let us look at the location. This is Bethel. And what was Bethel? This is in the northern kingdom. And if you go back and review that, you will find that when the kingdom split, Jeroboam became king of the northern kingdom. And in every way, he meant to compete with Judah in the south. And so he set up two centers of worship. Dan in the north and Bethel in the south of his territory. And there he erected temples and appointed priesthood and cast golden calves and instituted the worship of Baal for the children of God with all the horrible pagan practices that went along with the worship of Baal. Bethel is the southern cultic center of the worship of Baal in the kingdom of Israel. This is a town the economy of which is built completely around the worship of Baal. This is a town where prestige and office is entirely connected to the worship of Baal. This is a town totally dedicated to the worship Of Baal. This is a town where not very long ago there would have been priests of Baal who were part of the challenge to Elijah on Mount Carmel. And he humiliated them. And he took a sword and he killed them. Four hundred priests of Baal. Humiliated and killed by Elijah. Brothers, cousins, uncles, fathers. To the people in this town. And now, what did I tell you in the beginning? Elijah is gone. The man whom they would love to have killed, but whom they feared, because after all, he could call fire down from heaven. Is gone. And the guy that is left and walking through town now is his number two who just stood by and watched Elijah do the impressive things that he did. And even if they were only teenage boys, they would know that this man was hated in this town. And they would know why. And they would know that this man's big gun protector is gone. And they would regard him as suddenly vulnerable and helpless. And Judy, are you suddenly feeling even less safe? And it may be worse than that. All of that, I think, is plain in the context. I will add this and tell you that I can't swear that it's true, but during the Babylonian captivity, when the scribes got around to writing commentaries about Scripture, they wrote of this, it said that the nar Katal, the little subordinates of Baal, were not children at all in any sense, that they were the priest of Baal in the town. And that when they said to Elisha, go up, go up, Baldy, that it was a veiled threat that they meant to kill him and burn him on the altar of Baal in town and that he would go up in smoke. I do not know that that is so. I can't. Call that from the context as I have said the other things but I know that it's what the rabbis said about this incident what you need to get from it is that we're not talking about the preschool letting out and a bunch of four year olds making baldy cracks that is not the situation on which we are looking here and to sum up the situation let me do it this way Elijah is gone. And the enemies of the covenant are emboldened by his absence. But the emissaries of the covenant, the sons of the prophet, are discouraged by his absence. And both need to learn a lesson. Enemies of the covenant who are emboldened by Elijah's departure need to learn a lesson. Emissaries of the covenant who are discouraged by Elijah's departure need to learn a lesson. And the strange thing is that they both need to learn the same lesson. And here it is. It wasn't about Elijah. Do you follow me? I said Elijah called down fire from heaven. The real question is who sent down fire from heaven? And the answer to that question is God. Elijah spoke as God told him to speak and told the clouds to close themselves off and not rain. And Elijah spoke again as God told him to speak that the clouds should open up and rain. So Elijah said the words in the hearing of the people and that's the part that they fastened onto. But who really stopped the rain? And who started it again? It is true. That Elijah outran the chariots of the king. But it says that he did it because the spirit of the Lord fell upon him. Who is responsible? God. It was never about Elijah. It was always about God. And those who thought that they feared Elijah, but did not fear God, needed to learn the difference. And those who thought that they trusted in Elijah, but had not yet put their trust in the Lord, they needed to learn the difference too. Yes, Elijah was taken from them, but God is still with them. Yes, Elijah is no longer in your way, but God has not changed. And if the God who instructed, prepared, empowered, and preserved Elijah is the same God walking with, instructing, preparing, empowering, and preserving Elisha, well, then we're okay, aren't we? Because it was always God. And everybody needed to learn this lesson. Maybe even Elisha needed to learn this lesson but the sons of the prophets needed to learn it and the worshipers of Baal needed to learn it and we need to learn it now I do not intimate that anybody here puts me in the category with Elijah but you ought to because he was just a man and I am just a man and the hope is that we are both men of God and it is that of God part that makes the difference you see it's not about me it's not about Eric it's not about your elders it's about God And if Eric and I and all the current elders were stricken from your midst today, God would still be with you. And friends, if it takes a good bear mauling to teach us this lesson, it would be worth it for us to have learned it. It is always about God. For you and I, it is always about Jesus Christ. And He will always raise up, preserve, empower, and instruct those to whom He gives mission and responsibility. And we may Trust in Him. No matter what the opposition, no matter how dark the circumstance, no matter how the world may seem to be stacked against us, no matter what hero of the past, distant, or recent we wish we had with us that we don't, God will make all the difference that ever needs to be made. And we need to trust that just as surely as the sons of the prophets needed to trust it.
0: We want to take a moment to thank all of you, our faithful listeners, for setting aside time each week for the Indian-run Christian Church podcast. You can find out more about the church by visiting our website, at www.christforeastcanton.com That's www.christforeastcanton all one word.com On behalf of Pastor Terry and all the folks at Indian Run Christian Church I pray God's blessing on you and your family.